The following is a paid commercial program, and the views expressed are those of the speaker and do not reflect the views or opinions of iHeartRadio, its staff, or management. Broadcasting live from the Santa Lucia Highlands through the heart of the Casterville Artichoke Fields, westward to the Elkhorn Slough, and south to the rugged Big Sur coastline, you're listening to What's the Plan? A weekly discussion with local thought leaders about the future of Monterey County. And now, here's your host, Mr. Paul Wyant. Good afternoon, everyone. We have a great show for you today featuring Mr. Charles Green. He's a professor emeritus at Cornell University in the Earth and Atmosphere Sciences Department. He's helping lead the effort to convert the NOAA building near the Point Pinos Lighthouse in Pacific Grove to a marine science center. Recently in the news, Julie Packer, the president of the Monterey Aquarium, and Jimmy Panetta have come out publicly to urge the government not to sell the building and uh, basically backing the effort to convert it to a marine sciences building. It's an interesting project, and uh, we'll get into that discussion in just a second. But first, let me remind you that I'm Paul Wyant, owner of Express Employment Professionals of Monterey County. At Express, we can help you find great people for your business. So please give us a call today at 831 and of course, if you're an employer looking for employees, give me a call, 831-920-1230. Well, my discussion with Professor Green went for well over an hour and I had to edit it down for this half hour program. So we're going to start with him talking about his research into algae biofuels and how that evolved into something else. It's it's really a fascinating discussion. And towards the end of the discussion, we'll talk about the NOAA building near Point Pinos Lighthouse. You're going to want to stick around for the whole thing. It's, it's a great discussion. A brilliant professor from Cornell. So here we go. Well, so let me, let me I was starting off uh, telling you about the the algal biofuels but we're we're actually way beyond that now so uh what what we realized is that um it turns out that it's pretty expensive uh to produce biofuels from from microalgae um because it's and it's never going to be as as cheap as as fossil fuels um just because you know basically fossil fuels come from the same place but you've had mother nature applying the heat and pressure for millions of years, right? And if we have to do that, um, you know, we're never going to be able to compete on cost. But where things started to head is we realized, okay, if we're going to try to produce fuels, um, what we need is we need to have um, co-products. So the Department of Energy recognized that we needed to have valuable co-products that, you know, you would pr- be producing simultaneously with the with the fuels um what the the doe sometimes doesn't think things through all the way and so uh you know if if you think this through if you have a a a co-product so what we were originally looking at were animal feeds and and aqua feeds um so you know uh those are much more valuable than the fuels the problem is if you have a if you have a a co-product that is produced on the same scale as the fuels, right? And it's more valuable, that becomes the primary driver of your business, right? So you're no longer really in the fuel business. You may be producing fuels on the side, but you're now in the animal nutrition or in the human nutrition markets, right? And so that's going to be driving it. So what we what we the, the direction we're headed now is focusing on how we can meet 
you know, human nutritional demand by mid-century, and then looking at, at the climate benefits that you get from that. So one of them is obviously, yes, you could potentially produce um, bio, algal-based biofuels at a cost that would be commercially viable if you have these other more valuable co-products. But it turns out that there's other climate benefits that are much greater. Uh, for example, so the reason why algae looks so attractive is that both microalgae and macroalgae grow at least one or two orders of magnitude faster than the fastest growing land plants. And what that means is that you can potentially get the, the biomass that you need um, for producing these valuable products in one-tenth to one-hundredth the area. And so, so what that means is that if we start to... So we grow microalgae, even though they're marine microalgae, we grow them on land. We grow them in industrial facilities on land. And, what, and you don't need fresh water. <laughs> um, you know, you're, you're much more... Um, uh, you're, you're much, <laughs> you don't lose as much of the nutrients that you provide as when you try to grow things on land. I mean, half the fertilizer that we add in terrestrial agriculture ends up washing into our streams and our lakes and eventually into the ocean. And we, as I tell people, when we're growing microalgae on land, the only nutrients that we lose in the system are the ones that are actually locked up in the products that we're producing. We don't lose any other nutrients. Everything else can be recycled. So um, if, you can, if you can produce um, you know, the products that you're currently getting from terrestrial agriculture in one-tenth to one-hundredth the land area, that greatly reduces the pressure that you have to develop land. So all of a sudden, if you can produce something that replaces soy, there's no reason to deforest the Amazon anymore. If you can uh, produce the same, you know, products of comparable or even higher quality than palm oil, there's no reason to deforest the, you know, the rainforests in Malaysia and Indonesia. So there's all sorts of environmental benefits that, that come from this. And all of these are climate related, right? Because these rainforests store a tremendous amount of carbon in in the form of peat, and if we end up, uh, you know, if we if we don't have to develop those forests, and we can potentially even even reforest them, uh, that has tremendous you know long term benefits for climate. So these are the kinds of problems, and we're we're also looking at things like kelp. Um, you know that there's a lot of promises that pe that people make about kelp without sort of working through the numbers. Um, you know, if, if we really want kelp to become a major um, player in the, in the global carbon budget, uh, we can't just be growing, uh, you know, these macroalgae and kelp along the coast. There's just not enough coastline uh, in the world to meet the demand. So there are a number of companies um, and scientists working on the uh, technological infrastructure to grow macroalgae and kelp out in the open ocean um, to sort of greatly increase the area that's available. Because if we can develop those technologies and grow them out at sea, then that, that really enables us to scale up to the levels that actually can be important, um, you know, in, in terms of 
impacting the global carbon budget. So I, I see people, see a lot of people get caught up in, the, in, in this and say, well, you know, kelp forests are incredibly productive. They, you know, produce, uh, they're producing new biomass a hundred times faster than you could grow it on land. And, and it's true that, you know, on a, on a per acre basis, they're very productive. But if you don't have enough acres, it doesn't matter. And that's why we're looking at, at, at trying to expand um, the areas where we can actually grow it. And um, I would imagine that it would probably increase the number of oysters, clams, and uh, mussels that you would uh, have, which are delicious. So we've got yeah, that. Yeah. I mean, all sorts of really cool ways to, you know, to develop um, what, what I call it sort of the next, the next uh, generation of aquaculture. A lot of, uh, uh, you know, aquaculture doesn't have the best reputation in the world. Um, you know, a lot of the focus has been on, on it, especially in the U.S., has been on shellfish and on high-value finfish. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, you know, so everybody thinks salmon, right? Um, yeah, you live up in Friday Harbor, and there's a number of uh, salmon farms, and they, they're just basically giant cages with, where a lot of seals and sea lions hang out. But, and, yeah. so, but, you know, it turns out if you look at it globally, the place where aquaculture is really done um, in a serious way is, is in China. Um, and 75% of the biomass produced from aquaculture uh, of, of finfish is actually freshwater fin fish. And, um, and, and in China, they also produce a tremendous amount of, of algae and also uh, freshwater plants. Um, you know, they, they dominate that market. 99% of the production in the world is happening in China. Now, they don't do it necessarily in the most environmentally favorable way. So, you know, I think that there's real opportunity for the U.S. to become the world leader in this next um, generation of, of aquaculture, not necessarily in terms of the amount we produce, because, um, you know, our market isn't as large as China's or India's, but we can become the technological leaders. We can figure out how to do it in an environmentally favorable way, make good money, and really be the leaders in that technology. Um, so that's that's one of the things that our task force is working uh, working on uh, through Ocean Visions. Now, how this all ties in to to the Coast Project is um, I've been talking with the director of Ocean Visions, and Ocean Visions is, has just been named um, as as a, a program office for one of the UN decade for. Ocean Science for for Sustainable Development Centers, and um, and I've been talking to the director of Ocean Visions about the idea of Coast serving as the the that the office uh, for that program, which would be really exciting because now we're now we're not just talking about a national impact; we're talking about truly an an an, an office that is you know, at the forefront of this international uh, effort uh, over the next decade in, in ocean science for sustainable development. So I, I'm, I'm really excited about that opportunity. We're, um, we're talking with Stanford um, about opportunities there. Uh, the Stanford uh, campus at Hopkins Marine Station. Hopkins Marine Station is the oldest marine lab 
um, on the West Coast in the U.S. Um, so it has quite a history and tradition, um, but uh, it's actually uh, cannot expand anymore. They cannot add new buildings on the campus. There's you know restrictions on how it can grow. So we're we're I'm talking with with the director of Hopkins, and I'll have a meeting with faculty members there next week to look at ways that um, if we are able to get this prop this property for Coast, how we can sort of help meet meet some of Stanford's needs um, in you know really helping make um, I mean to to some extent Monterey and and Pacific Grove already um, have uh, you know nationally internationally recognized uh, institutions in ocean science and public education you have you know Mabari right up up the road in Moss Landing you have um, the Long Marine Lab at in Santa Cruz you have uh, uh, the Monterey Bay Aquarium, obviously, more locally. Um, and you have the Navy Postgraduate School, uh, Moss Landing Marine Lab. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of things going on in the Monterey Bay area. Um, and, you know, and there's, a, there's several NOAA labs. So we're trying to figure out, Stanford is about to um, embark on a, <laughs> on a billion dollar effort Believe it or not, yes, that's B with a B. Um, <laughs> or that's billion with a B uh, to expand in the area of ocean science, and uh, so we we would very much like to work with Stanford to help them, uh, you know, become all that they can be in ocean science, um, and and we we see an opportunity there uh, for Coast. And so I, I, you know, I'm a scientist, so I've sort of been focusing. On, on, you know, the scientific benefits of it. But what's also really exciting about our, our vision for COAST is that we also want to sort of look at the um, interface between the arts and, and the science. And of course, Monterey, um, Pacific Grove, Carmel all have a long history of uh, what I call ocean-inspired art. And, you know, one of the things that's really nice about combining science with art is sometimes you reach people through art that you would never reach, you know, as, as scientists. Right. Um, and so it's, it's another medium to get people to think about the ocean um, and, and how in, important to it, important it is to us, um, you know, not just in, in terms of providing food and energy but in providing, you know, something that is really special to us um, as human beings. Um, people are attracted to the ocean. And, you know, I think art is another way uh, to, to reach people. Absolutely. The, uh, yeah, I think Brandman and uh, Middlebury might also, in some way, I don't know if they have marine biology uh, programs, but they're local and they have incredible properties near the ocean. I'm wondering, uh, let me just say, I, I have reached out to Middlebury. I'm really excited about, they've, they've got some, um, you know, they, they're, they reach out in the marine policy area. You know, I kind of came into this in a, in a funny way. I, I was, my wife and I were planning to spend our sabbatical leave at Hopkins Marine Station. Um, and so we made these plans and we arrived in November. And of course we were in the middle of the 
pandemic and the Marine station was closed. Mm -hmm. uh, so we, you know, we were living in Pacific Grove and sort of mostly staying in our house. And, you know, we had our, our little uh, pandemic bubble that we were living in and we met with a few people, but it wasn't the sabbatical that we had planned. Um, we, we never actually <laughs> entered the Marine station. Um, but one of the things that how I got involved with Coast is, you know, we were renting a house in the area and they had a dis that little publication, Discover Pacific Grove. Mm -hmm. And I just happened to pick it up and I, I opened it up and I was reading it. And there was a one page thing that Steve Houck had written about the, uh, the NOAA lab, which I had heard about. I knew about the research that had been done there. Um, and I had, I, I ride, I, I cycle a lot and I had just, you know, that week cycled and came across the NOAA lab for the first time. And, you know, the first time you see it, you're just blown away by the Ray Troll mural, right? Um, yeah. and went, wow, that is really cool. And then I read Steve's article, you know, and he was talking about making, you know, an, an oceanographic museum. And so I got in touch with him and I, I said, you know, I'm not sure that an oceanographic museum is, is actually going to, um, you know, be an idea that will engage with a lot of people. But if we think about how to combine your interests in art and my interests in science and how to communicate science uh, to the world, there's a lot of opportunities here. So he and I got together and we talked about it and then we started, you know, generating interest. Um, and that ended up be being what I spent my sabbatical doing was, you know, getting, getting involved with, with Coast and developing strategies for figuring out how can we turn, you know, this building into something that can be a real asset for the community and have a, have a national and, and even an international impact. I, yeah, I think it's wonderful. And if you, uh, if you're bandwidth for uh, turning derelict buildings next to the ocean into something beautiful uh, continues or, or expands the point, sir, near the Point Sur Lighthouse, the, the California State Parks just bought the old Navy base down there, and there's a bunch of derelict buildings that, I tell you, would be great for uh, marine biology and marine research. But quickly, let's pivot. Yeah. I don't know if you've been down there to Point Sur, but it's near like Andrew Malera off Big Sur. But no, I, I have been there because um, oh, yeah. one of my areas of expertise is in uh, marine bioacoustics, ah. and the, the Navy facility used to be their SOSIS. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that's right you know, listening posts. So I taught three summers back in the late nineties. I taught marine bioacoustics courses at UC Santa Cruz mm -hmm. and bring our students down to show them that facility. That's cool. Yeah. That those, something needs to be done with that area. Cause it looks, it's just a, it's a fantastic area. And there's just a bunch of old buildings that are rotting away, but real quick, can you talk about, no, Jimmy Panetta just gave you a big vote of confidence and, and, possibly, maybe there'll be federal dollars thrown at this project for the NOAA building. Can you talk a little bit about that? Or have you met with uh, Congressman Panetta? Well, we haven't met in person. We've, we've had a Zoom call, right? Because it was still pandemic. Um, and the, the congressman has been amazing. Um, you know, uh, we weren't sure, you know, we were told early on in the process that, you know, the Government Services Administration is, is 
the agency that's been charged with selling it. I'm just going to call them the GSA. And we were told the GSA doesn't, they don't listen to anybody other than people above them. You know, they're, they're kind of the classic um, uh, kiss up, uh, kick down uh, organization. <laughs> it's uh, true. They sell all the buildings on the old Ford Ord, and I. It's it's kind of a it's mystical what's happening over there. But anyway, that's another topic. Yeah. So so you know, we were told the only way you're going to get GSA to listen is if you get Congress. Uh, you know, something happening from Congress, and and your congressman Jimmy Panetta is probably your best bet. And so you know, we we spent some time thinking about okay, how do we do this. And, you know, we probably spend too, too much time being cautious about approaching him because he's very approachable and, and has been incredibly helpful. And we've been working with his um, environmental uh, policy advisor. And, you know, we helped uh, convince him to write this really great letter to the GSA, um, you know, a few weeks ago. Um, and, even more exciting, um, we just found out recently that even though the GSA is charged with the sale of the property, the property still belongs to NOAA. And so we we worked with with the congressman in his office um, to write a second letter um, to uh, Rick Spinrad, who is the recently um, approved. Uh, well, he, he recently appointed as the head administrator of NOAA, undersecretary of commerce, head administrator of NOAA. And we, the congressman wrote an even more powerful letter to Rick Spinrad than the one that, that he sent to the acting administrator for the GSA. Um, and, you know, is trying to basically say, hey, you know, this property um, should not just be sold to anyone when the when the community has demonstrated a tremendous amount of support for, you know, it being turned over and turned into something that really benefits the community. So that letter just went out this week. Um, I can send you a copy of that letter if you're interested. Oh, that would be interesting. Yeah. It's really powerful. And I know the Pacific Grove City Council also have somewhat less but they, but it demonstrates local support. Those guys are really uh, really behind it as well. Yeah, and and the Chamber of Commerce and the mayor. I mean, we've got you know we've got a lot of people uh, you know lined up. We've that's what we've been spending our you know the last half a year doing is really sort of building up a base of support. We've got a you know before we approached uh, Jimmy Panetta, we we uh, started a petition drive to get signatures um, to show that there's local support. When we first approached the congressman, we already had 750 signatures on that petition. It's now over a thousand signatures. Wow. You know, we're not. You know, Pacific Grove isn't that large, right? So, so that's pretty impressive, I think, to have. You know, the yeah, it's only 15,000 people. So you've got you know <laughs> a pretty. You got like eight percent of the population. That's good. Yeah. So anyway, um, we're we're you know when. <sighs> When we started this, a lot of people sort of, I think, kind of looked at, at us embarking on this sort of Don Quixote <laughs> sort of project. And I'm, I'm actually um, feeling pretty optimistic these days that we may actually pull this off. Um, yeah, well, 
be careful for what you wish for because even if even if they convey the building to you it's it probably is going to need several oh. million uh in renovation and then oh. and that the fundraising begins you know <laughs> uh, absolutely i i'm that's why no what but if, if you leverage csumb you're talking about leveraging csumb stanford and all these other places and and they become involved uh you know, I think that's, I don't know, well, Jimmy Panetta's father is big at CSUMB, so there's probably a, a, some synergies there as well. So, yeah, I think it's, yeah, in the defense. Yeah, no, we, we, I think we're pretty realistic about that. We recognize that the building's going to le- need at least $10 million to, to renovate it in a way that we want it renovated. We want this building um, to be really special. You know, it is, what makes it special now is the troll mural, right? Mm-hmm. If you were to take that troll mural away, um, you know, you have a building that's... <laughs> well, it looks a- like it's Soviet era, you know, it could be in uh, Kazakhstan or, you know, but yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know, there's lots of potential. Uh, yeah. You know, we've been working with, with an architect who's volunteering time to sort of think about what, what can be done um, if you put awnings and yeah, facades and awnings on it, it you probably could uh, transform it, uh, you know, at least yeah. its profile and make it something special as well. So, so at, at Cornell, we had a building, you know, that dates back from really the, nearly the beginning of the campus. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it, it was a beautiful building on the, on the outside, mm-hmm. but it was like all of these little narrow hallways and little offices, and it was like catacombs on the inside. And, you know, it was a building of historical um, significance. So it wasn't like Cornell could just tear it down. So what they did is they basically um, completely, well, they they saved the facade and they basically tore everything out of the middle. And and it was more expensive than building the building new, but it's an incredibly beautiful place to be inside now. They, they took the, they took the roof off and put in a glass ceiling. So all of us, and they have this huge large atrium in the middle of it. So now you have all of this natural light coming into this large atrium. I mean, the it's, it's a spectacular building. And and that's one of the things that we're, we're talking about doing this because if you've seen the the existing building, it has very few windows. And, you know, one of the things that people would naturally think is, Oh, well, you need to first put, in a lot of new windows and we probably will put in some windows but we we also wanted to sort of um i was about to say think outside the box but we're actually thinking inside the box um about you know putting in a um you know a large uh glass uh translucent glass uh, or or acrylic um roof that would oh, enable that would us to get yeah. light into the into the interior of the building Okay, unfortunately, that brings us to the end of our half an hour. Uh, I really want to thank uh, Professor Charles Green. Great guest and great work he's doing over there at the NOAA property on Lighthouse Avenue near Point Pinos. This, uh, this episode comes with a call to action. Right now, if you go on the change.org website, you'll see their petition. And they currently, as I'm taping this, reside at about 1,100 signatures. They need to get to 1,500, or that's what they're hoping to do. Uh, so you can go there to change.org and uh, 
kind of search for the NOAA property in Pacific Grove. And it talks about how they want creative reuse of the NOAA property and preserving of its vibrant sea murals by Guggenheim honored artist Ray Troll. And uh, it talks a little bit about their mission and how they want to preserve the building for service to oceanography. And they want to begin their new mission, uh, inspiring scientists, artists, writers, and uh, students. So go on to change.org and sign that petition today and get them to 1500. I want to remind you, I'm Paul Wyant, owner of Express employment professionals of Monterey County at Express. We can help your business find wonderful staff. It's hard to find good people now. Give us a call, 831-920-1230. We can make it a lot easier and hopefully get your business uh, back fully employed and doing what you do best. You've been listening to What's the Plan Monterey. You can find all of our podcasts at whatstheplanmonterey.com. This show was produced by the greatest producer in the business, Mr. Mark Carbonaro. And I'd also like to thank Mr. David Marzetti, who helped make this show possible. He, of course, is the host of the 9 a.m. Saturday morning Shag Bag Radio Show. Always fun to listen to that. So thank you so much, David. Okay, stay tuned for Business Sense Radio with Mr. Edward King. That's up next. That's life. That's life. That's what all the people say. The preceding was a paid commercial program, and the views expressed are those of the speaker and do not reflect the views or opinions of iHeartRadio, its staff, or management. iHeartRadio is the easy-to-use app for music and radio. Download the free iHeartRadio app today.